Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Sarah Weiss from Atlanta, Georgia. And today I'm joined by Dr. Bobby Tajanin from Rush University in Chicago. And we'll be discussing the recent IFAR publication, Histopathologic Features of Biologic Therapy Non-Responders in Chronic Rhinosinusitis with Nasal Polyposis. Welcome, Bobby, and congratulations to you and your co-authors on the paper. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So in the rhinology arena, we're really lucky to take care of patients with chronic rhinosinusitis and nasal polyps. Um, This is a disease process that significantly affects quality of life, and it's really a joy as a medical professional when we can make a positive difference in these patients' lives. For many patients with nasal polyps, standard treatments like topical steroid preparations, intermittent oral steroids and antibiotics, as well as sinus surgery can substantially improve their quality of life and day-to-day functioning. However, there's a subset of nasal polyp patients that still struggle. Um, This group, especially those with type 2 predominant inflammation, has recently benefited from the FDA approval of biologic medications over the last four years. Many would say that biologic medicines for nasal polyps, such as dupilumab, for example, have been game changers in the treatment of recalcitrant nasal polyp patients. That said, there's still a small group of patients with nasal polyps who don't respond to biologics, and we struggle to understand the reasons for this lack of biologic response. With that in mind, I was hoping you could discuss a little bit about your overall aim for performing this study and the objectives of the work that you did. Yeah, no, again, thank you for having me. Um, you know, for the impetus for this study is, you know, obviously as a tertiary rhinologist, you know, we get referrals for pretty refractory nasal polyposis, particularly from the, the community. And um, what we've noticed with the advent of the biologics is that there's more practitioners and providers actually prescribing these medicines, um, including allergists, including, you know, general ENTs who, you know, in the past may have actually not been given any biologics and all of a sudden they find themselves, you know, educating patients on how to get biologics. So the impetus for the study is that, you know, the, the types of patients we're seeing now in the office are not so much the patients that we saw in the, in the past where they just failed the surgery and just kind of needed a revision. It's the patients that have failed the surgery or, um, or some types of intervention and have been put on these biologics and they're still having problems. And, you know, the goal of this study was to kind of further uh, look into this group to actually see if there's something about their disease process that is predisposing them to, you know, recalcitrant disease to, to biologic therapy. And if we can kind of understand why this group may be refractory, could we in the future predict which patients with polyps may actually not do well, you know, with initial biologic therapy? And that's kind of the, the impetus of the study. Now, at our institution, we might go into this a little bit more, we do a lot of uh, uh, tissue profiling. And, you know, I remember back in, you know, f- uh, fellowship and training and residency, when we used to do surgery, uh, surgery on patients with chronic sinusitis, we should just get a path report that just says, you know, chronic sinusitis, no malignancy. And as we know, the disease process and the various endotypes of sinus disease, that doesn't really provide us meaningful information to kind of help the patient long term. So in about 2014, 
2015, we kind of instituted a reporting, standardized reporting scheme that our pathologists do on all of the tissue that's removed during surgery. Now, obviously, this is not something that we pioneered as actually. This is probably uh, initially described by the group in um, uh, Australia, from Richard Harvey's group, where, you know, I, we, he, he came, comes up with this structured histopathology report. It includes about 13 variables that measure not only the type of inflammatory environment, but also factors related to the tissue. And this concludes factors that may uh, be indication of metaplastic change or of poor mucociliary function. So it gives us not just the inflammatory environment, but also how well the mucociliary function of the tissue is. And perhaps that has significant impact as well on their disease pathology, pathogenesis. Yes, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the structured histopathology report. That's something that many of us don't have access to from our pathology departments and our pathology colleagues. Do you feel like having that structured pathology report helps you in your kind of overall treatment plan? And and do you find that it helps to predict or potentially improve patient outcomes? Yeah, you know, we've published numerous numerous studies, at least yeah, twenty or so, kind of looking at various uh, associations with the tissue pathology. You know, from the most basic, you know, this is eosinophilic or not, that by itself is actually very meaningful because many patients without nasal polyps may actually have eosinophilic disease. So, in the non-polyp patients, it actually is very helpful because it lets us uh, know that they may have like occult eosinophilic disease where polyps may not readily be evident, and those are probably the patients that may have undergone a previous surgery and may have not had polyps at presentation, but upon recurrence of their disease, they actually present with polyps. So um, it potentially can help identify that group because we know that in patients with eosinophilic disease, um, they require a lot more longer care therapy. I mean, essentially, they have an inflammatory disease that needs continued management even despite uh, intervention. And that can sometimes be as simple as just a topical therapy just to maintain what they have. And it's been pretty instrumental and just at that most basic level. You know, we all also have characterized other kind of conditions as well. We treat a lot of sinonasal cancer and a lot of those patients are radiated and they developed a very unique type of sinus disease that's really highlighted by poor mucociliary function from the radiation, recalcitrant purulent disease. And in those patients, we found, you know, very unique factors within the pathology that may potentially predispose to that. So that may have some bearing on the type of surgery we do, whether it be more extended, uh, whether we may slant towards doing like a medial maxillectomy instead of a standard maxillary entrostomy. So trying to understand, you know, the multitude of factors that contribute to a patient's dysfunction really helps us cater the type of therapy, almost try to personalize it a bit. And then in some patients, you really don't get an excellent, any indication, really, and their pathology may not be particularly revealing at all. And in those patients, they can sometimes be tricky because they could have um, potential immune system issues that are predisposing to infections. Yeah, great. I I think that in, in your structured pathology report, it, as you mentioned, uh, the group in Sydney, there are several different factors that are looked at. And we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk more about some of those as we get into this particular study. So going back to the work that you did, the the paper that we're discussing here and kind of what the histopathology shows on patients that have not done as well with biologic therapies. Let's start by just having you give us general synopsis of this study's methods. What did you look at? What were your patient groups? And then kind of a synopsis of your analyses and the key findings of the study. As a routine, we kind of database all of the uh, patients that have surgery here. 
including their, uh, their surgery date as well as their pathology reports. And we keep kind of a, a running uh, database of patients. So in this study in particular, we, we highlighted our patients that were on biologic therapy um, prior to surgery. Uh, now, we didn't these were not all patients on uh, Dupixent. The majority of them were. You know, there's only 20 patients on biologics, and certainly the, uh, the the volume of patients will continue to grow. But this is kind of the initial study to look at those 20 patients and that kind of were on biologics but still had persistent sinus disease um, that needed a revision surgery. Now, the comparison group for this group would not just be kind of the run-of-the-mill sinus patient, and actually would be the comparative group of chronic sinusitis with nasal polyposis patients that don't need the biologic therapy. So our control group was a group of patients with just kind of uh, chronic sinusitis with nasal polyposis that was undergoing initial kind of, or undergoing surgery for management of the disease. So one group that just had nasal polyps, not biologic um, dependent, and another group that um, was on biologics and failed and failed that that treatment so had refractory symptoms so it was a retrospective study um, we had about 257 patients in the control group just standard patients with chronic sinusitis um, with nasal polyposis and then in the uh, the study group there was 20 patients that were on biologic therapy up to through their sur- up to the surgery and through it um, as a as a kind of a standard we don't take patients off the biologics um, in the event that they're driving some other benefit, whether it be um, as asthma and so forth. So um, all the patients that were on, um, that were undergoing surgery had at least biologic therapy within two weeks of their of their surgery or, or more if they're dosed on a, a monthly uh, monthly medicine. And then basically in that, and what we did is a retrospective review, we kind of compared the structured histopathology report of the patients, the control group of uh, patients with chronic nas- with nasal polyps and those that have failed biologic therapy. And basically looked for associations and differences between the group two groups and their tissue. Now, obviously with only 20 patients in the, the biologic group, it, it's hard to do very large, robust, multivariate analyses, but we wanted to really highlight because this type of analysis hadn't been done and it can at least provide us some initial preliminary indications for what may be going on with this group. Great. And so if you can just tell us what you found, what were some of those key histopathologic differences? So I knew like anecdotally, like operating on these patients that, you know, a lot of them, uh, the tissue was just different. You know, they may have had previous surgery that was partial um, they may have had just more kind of indications of remodeling. So that was kind of the hypothesis kind of going in that perhaps it's not really the TH2 disease that's kind of driving it. And um, when we actually look at the, the tissue of histopathology, the one notable finding was that the biologic group actually had less eosinophilia. Now, obviously, the challenge there is, you know, is it less eosinophilia because they're on biologics or is it less eosinophilia because they were chosen incorrectly to be on biologics? And, you know, that will take like a more sophisticated study to kind of figure that out, but it could be either. Now, there was a a study out of Australia that looked at the tissue in patients that were on various biologics. Now, dupixin hasn't been studied, pilibab hasn't been studied, but in patients with mepolizumab, you know, their tissue eosinophilia actually stayed elevated, so it made no difference. And in patients on uh, benralizumab, it actually knocked it out to zero. So there, there is a potential effect of it. We don't really know for dupixent or for dupilumab, but this was just kind of the first indication that you know, perhaps it could have some suppressive effect or these patients that were put on the biologics were chosen incorrectly and didn't have TH2 disease. The other factor that we noticed is that there was evidence of significantly more remodeling of the tissue. In particular, you know, we looked at a uh, we look at the various kind of remodeling factors we look at. We look at 
um, hyperplastic change, fibrosis, you know, squamous metaplasia. We look at edema, uh, basement membrane thickening, fibrosis, fungal elements. And what we saw was that there was a lot more robust kind of basement membrane thickening in patients that have failed biologics, which suggests that these patients have significantly re more structured remodeling of their tissue and perhaps mucociliary dysfunction. So taken together, it, this gives some potential indication that um, the biologic failure patients either maybe not, may not have as robust eosinophilic disease or um, they may have some mucociliary dysfunction deficiencies that are actually um, overcoming the benefits of the biologics. Interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, even aside from polyp patients, I think some of the chronic rhinosinusitis patients that we struggle with the most are some of those ones where the mucociliary clearance is disrupted and the tissues have been remodeled and um, the disease is particularly recalcitrant. So it's interesting that you may be seeing this in polyp patients as well from a mm -hmm. pathologic perspective. Were there any findings in the study that you didn't expect? Um, anything that was surprising as you examined the data? Or did you feel like everything kind of fit with your the hypothesis that you came up with initially? Yeah, I think that at least the initial preliminary data kind of it kind of makes sense. You know, I it would have you know, I, I was actually so surprised that more of the the kind of the histopathological factors that kind of indicate poor mucocellular dysfunction was a little bit higher. Um, but then again, you know, also nasal polyptosis and TH2 disease is also kind of highlighted by significant restructuring and modeling of the tissue. So it's not uncommon to see these distant patients with, with really bad uh, recalcitrant sinus disease. And then we did a subgroup analysis because the patients with the uh, on the biologics definitely had you know had more revision surgery than the other groups, so there was potential confounder there. So we did look at a, a subgroup analysis of just the patients that have had surgery in both groups. That was about 100 um, and 50 in the um, control group. They've had previous uh, surgery as well as oh, I believe. 16 of the uh, biologic patients had previous surgery. And that subgroup analysis, actually, the you know the results kind of stayed the same with the basement membrane thickening. And interestingly, squamous metaplasia also kind of jumped up as well in the uh, study group. So, you know, the effect of surgery doesn't seem to be, you know, what's responsible for this remodeling change. And it's more so the, the, the type of disease that they have. So what are some potential limitations of this study? Yeah, the biggest limitation, obviously, is the retrospective nature of the study. It's very hard in this population to kind of control for all the other confounders and variables. You know, this is also a pooled series from, you know, three surgeons, uh, mostly two, but um, there are some variabilities in our practice patterns. I've gotten the criticism before about pre-medicating patients when I do structured histopathology studies. So like I, as a practice for me, I don't put any patients on steroids or antibiotics, primarily from a research perspective in that it has implications for the pathology, but that doesn't, you know, I'm not going to force that onto someone else's practice pattern, you know, if they feel that there's a benefit um, to patients to, to be on medicines before surgery, then I, then I get it. So there's some variability there. And, you know, there has been criticisms that if whatever medicines are on before the surgery can potentially impact the final tissue um, results on the pathology. Now, we did at least look at the, the two groups and the, the differences in their medication use between before before surgery and the previous two weeks. And it was about equivalent. About half of the patients got prednisone before the surgery and about 60% of them got antibiotics before the surgery. And that was equal between the two groups. So although there was some variability in kind of the care of some of these patients, it was equal amongst the two study groups. So 
Um, we hope that effect has been uh, mitigated. The other issue is that, you know, it's a small study. There's only 20 patients in the control group. It's very hard to do high-powered multivariate analysis with this, um, with that, with with that low of an end. So that's certainly a limitation of the study. And the other effect, the other limitation of the study is that the assumption is that that the control group of patients with nasal polyphosis would uh, not need, well, the assumption is that they're not on biologics, but will they be in the future? Like, we don't really know if truly the patients in the control group will never be on biologics. It could be that a year or two down the line, and may end up on biologics and may actually not respond to it. So we don't know if there is some, ultimately some of the patients may end up in that you know, study group in the future. But we do know, at least from studies and large series that, you know, and this is probably consistent with our, our group here too, is that about 10% of patients with polyps usually that have surgery, at least at the academic institutions, end up on biologics. So it, that's, it's probably going to be 10% in that group would be my guess. And there is a significant portion of ARD patients and revision surgery patients in that, in that study as well. So, so that, that's, those are the kind of, I would say, the, big, the three big you know, limitations of the study. Yeah, I appreciate, you know, it's, it's always, uh, I think, it keeps you honest, you know, to take a look at your, at your own work and to think about limitations and, and, you know, how to interpret the data in light of those limitations and also how to, you know, potentially design studies in the future that may take those into account. You know, obviously, nonetheless, your, you know, your work here has had, has some interesting findings, despite any limitations. So how can the practicing rhinologist or otolaryngologist apply the work that you've done, you know, the, the findings of your study? How can clinical rhinologist, otolaryngologist apply this to daily patient care? Yeah, I think that um, as biologics are going to be used much more, I think we have to be just very thoughtful about how we're choosing patients. And it is almost a, a, a mandate that you have a clear indication that this patient has a TH2-driven disease. And I think that if we look at the data in big series and big institutions, and only about 10% of patients with polyps end up on biologics, why are we seeing so much more being prescribed? So I think there's a concern that there could potentially be an overuse of it. And, and we just want to make sure the study kind of highlights that in patients that may not have an eosinophilic-driven process or a TH2-driven process, they, they could potentially not benefit from this, and there's a high cost burden for that. So all, in, all investigations should be uh, performed to really ascertain if they truly have an eosinophilic process. Now, that's sometimes a difficult thing to do. Um, you can make some conjectures based off the comorbidity, if they have comorbid um, ATP or asthma. The bloodiest, and we've done studies too, where like the bloodiest synophilia is actually in the minority of patients with very severe synophilic disease. You don't always see that. When you see it, it's definitely in the tissue, but when you don't, it, when you don't see it in the blood, you can still see it in the tissue. So, you know, the blood levels are not, not the greatest to do that, but certainly it could at least catch an increased percentage of patients that have eosinophilic disease. Yeah, so I think being thoughtful about that. Also thinking that perhaps a patient with really advanced disease that has maybe evidence of significant remodeling on their scan. When you look at their scan, you just see a lot of, you know, thickening osteitis that may have some scar tissue from previous surgery. That may be a patient where perhaps there's some other factor in their sinus disease that is also contributing to disease, which should also be um, managed as well. And if that means considering um, 
like a different type of surgery that you would do or kind of referral to a tertiary specialist to kind of deal with some of these things that would be, you know, a reasonable consideration. Um, but certainly thoughtfully choosing patients that have true TH2-driven disease is probably going to be the biggest factor that's critical to ensure success. I absolutely agree. That's critical. That's um, something that I, I hear myself saying and thinking about constantly when it comes yeah. to these recalcitrant uh, polyp patients. Mm -hmm. My last question for you is, based on the work that you've done, has this led to some ideas for future studies or maybe things that you're already working on that, that may give us some more information along these lines in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the uh, we need larger studies. Uh, we are continuing to recruit patients into our into our database and find patients that are kind of failing treatments. So definitely, the the, the most important thing to do would be to kind of validate this this information with larger studies. I'm already kind of reaching out to other institutions to see if we can pull some data. I've gotten some other institutions to also get on board with the the structured histology work. Um, so we're pulling some of our patients together. And I, so that's the biggest biggest thing that we need to do is just make sure that we have large pool series and multi-institutional can certainly help us expedite that. And then hopefully, you know, if there's some good preliminary data from that, we can move that towards a more of a perspective study where um, we can take some of those, you know, ideas and kind of apply it as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me, Bobby. Mm -hmm. I I'd really encourage our listeners to get the manuscript, read it, review it thoroughly, and see how they can apply it to their practice. This has been an excellent discussion. And again, thanks for joining me and congratulations to you and your colleagues on your publication. And thank you, of course, to our Scope It Out listeners. This is Sarah Wise for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm signing off for now, and we hope that you can join us next time. Thank you.